Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us for the third installment of our Teen Favorites series. So if you don't remember, this is the series where one of us chooses a teen favorite that the other one hasn't seen, and then we talk about it. So today we have writer Candace Jane Opper here to discuss the 1989 film Teen Witch, written by Robin Menken and Vernon Zimmerman and directed by Dorian Walker. So hello, Candace, and welcome. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Joe. It is so exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you here. Yes, and we would love it if you could tell everyone just... Uh, give give everyone a general overview of who you are and your general interest in movies. Sure. My pleasure. So uh, my name's Candace. I primarily identify as a writer. And I say that because it's not my day job, but I still <laughs> like to identify as such. My first book came out last year. It's called Certain and Impossible Events. So that was um, a long time in the making, and that was really exciting. Um, I also do a lot of writing about movies and um, pop culture and sort of like the areas where personal and cultural history kind of meet. So a lot of my writing is around my personal experience of pop culture. And movies are a huge part of that. I grew up in a family of what I often like to describe as lowbrow cinephiles. <laughs> like we were all movie-loving people, but not in an elitist kind of way. <laughs> I have older brothers who are twins who were born in the early 70s, and they got into the sort of like VHS obsession very early on in the 80s and were like the first kids on the block to have a VCR, and then they got a double VCR, and then like the rest is history. They used to just like rent movies, pirate movies, record them. And then we just had this massive collection of movies that they had either like, you know, quote, illegally taped from the video store, which they would be angry if they heard me saying this, because, but I think the statute of limitations is probably passed on that. And or record things off of cable or HBO or things like that. So we had this massive collection of VHS by the time that I was kind of old enough to be getting into movies in the mid to late 80s. And so I just spent a lot of time as a kid watching movies. Many of them were probably more like older or advanced than I should have been watching <laughs> at the age. But I also think that was kind of a symptom of growing up in the 80s and the kind of parenting that was typical of the 80s, <laughs> which was not very present. <laughs> also having older brothers, like I, I felt often that I needed to like keep up with them and watch everything they watched and like be able to tolerate everything they watch. So I also like grew up watching a lot of horror movies and I love horror movies and I was kind of desensitized to a lot of that at a young age. And I also just like grew up in a small town in the woods and so like there wasn't a whole lot to do. And so I feel like I movies were just a huge part of how I spent my time. And then um, when I went to college, I majored in film history. So that was kind of like summed all that up. But I never, like I didn't want to, work in I didn't want to work in academia so that never like panned out to a career but because movies and like my experience with them and what I learned in college are such a part of my sort of like understanding of the world it bleeds into my writing a lot so it feels like a very ever-present way of sort of understanding the world around me yeah and I mean you've written also very good pieces about film 
the ones I can think of are for Bright Wall, Dark Room. So you you also write about film still, too. And I think that's cool. That's that's kind of similar to my background where I studied film in school, but was like, what do I what am I going to do with this? And I, I can't make money doing this. But this is, I guess, this podcast and like my writing are kind of my ways of still keeping engaged with that, even though I make no money doing it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard unless you want to move to a city where the industry is really booming to work in the in the film industry. Strangely enough, so I live in Pittsburgh. And when I first moved here in 2015, I got a job working for an organization that puts on film festivals. And I thought oh. that was so ironic because I was like, I never thought I would actually like work in anything industry adjacent. And I worked there for about three years and it was fun. It was just like a a nonprofit, which can be kind of a, if anyone has worked for a nonprofit, understands that that's a lot harder than it looks. And there's often not a lot of money in it. So it wasn't totally sustainable, but it was fun while it lasted. And I got to like meet a lot of filmmakers and see a lot of independent films that I wouldn't have um, come across otherwise. So I, I somehow did kind of end up in that, that world a little bit. No, that's very cool. That, that would be kind of my dream. I would love to fall into a job where I can make money that still has some kind of film connection. And maybe maybe it will happen sometime. But for now, it's not how the cards have, have uh, what, what do I want to say? What's the expression? That's not the, that's not the hand I've been dealt. Yes. <laughs> well, so why don't you tell us why you chose Teen Witch and give us some of your background of like when you first saw it and what about it drew you in and what you liked about it as a kid and what you like about it now? Well, this was, uh, you know, I want to say this was one of the kind of pivotal movies to me as a kid, probably just because of the timing and the frequency with which it was played on cable. (laughs) I was, um, so I was nine years old when this movie came out. I don't recall seeing it in the movie theater, although I was like an avid moviegoer at the time. My mom took me to the movies frequently, but I don't remember seeing this one on the big screen, but I do remember it being constantly on HBO or TBS or TNT or, you know, some like random cable channels that would it would screen it on like a Sunday afternoon or something. So I remember seeing it all the time on TV. And um, like I said earlier, we probably had it on tape also. <laughs> I mean, I think what drew me to it as a kid, multiple things. I mean, I think I just was into any high school movie about people in high school because I was so fascinated by teenagers as a young person. And so, you know, the 80s was such a pivotal decade for for teen movies. And this, you know, it's not as popular as some of the other ones, but I think it still fits squarely into that genre. So that would have attracted me first thing. I was also really fascinated by magic. I don't want to say it was like one of my hobbies, but I think around the same time this movie came out, I was reading a series of books, like young adult novels. And I think the series was called Abracadabra. And my friends and I were reading it together. And it was about a young, like preteen girl who has magical powers. And so I think this probably coincided with that in this idea that like you could realize that you're part of something that you don't know you are part of, like the way that Louise realizes in this movie that she's a witch and she has always been, but she didn't know that, you know? And so 
I think part of it was this like fantasy of thinking that you were more special than you actually are in a way that you hadn't found out yet. Yes. And yeah. And so I don't, I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll talk more about it as we get into it, but I think that was a dream of mine was to like wake up one day and realize that I like was connected to something that I didn't understand yet, you know? So I was fascinated by like those magical aspects of it. And like many kids, mm -hmm. I lived inside a lot of like fantasies mm -hmm. and a lot of my fantasies involved having magical powers. Like what would I do if I had magical powers? And so this movie really kind of played into that for me. I have to admit, I haven't watched, I think I did rewatch it like sometime over the pandemic, but before that I hadn't watched it for a long time and now it it rings a lot campier than I would have picked up on as a kid. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about that, too. But, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy the campiness of it. it. It's impossible for me to watch it now and not realize how many, like, plot holes there are, obviously. Yeah. But I, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm along for the ride. I'm along for the ride with all the plot holes. <laughs> Has your kid seen it? No, he's, he's not quite there yet. He's, like, okay. he has this thing where he, he's, like, sort of thinks live action movies are for grown-ups and not kids. Mm. And so <laughs> he's starting to kind of do that transition. He's been we've been reading him the Harry Potter books, so he's Aww. been watching the Harry Potter movies as he finishes the books and so like that's sort of his gateway drug, I think. <laughs> so I think we'll we'll get him into it eventually. But I just wonder like how it would play with a a child of today, if they would see it and be like, what is this? <laughs> or think it's cool. Yeah. You know, but I think what, a lot, Candace, a lot of what you were saying, I could resonate with, and I bet your your son, your child could resonate with this, is the idea of being magical. Because even though I'm a different generation, I can remember watching Bewitched mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And, you know, we were running around doing our mouths, trying to do our mouths like Bewitched to cast spells. And I was always pretending I was from Jupiter and I was an alien that came down. So I, I just think that being magical is something universal. And I think you really maybe hit the nail on the head for me when you said Team Witch appeals to that because I think that, you know, you have to wonder why did this become such a cult film because it is so campy, but I think it it does appeal to that universal childhood dream of having magical powers and being something special. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, like I said, my kid is watching Harry Potter and that's the same concept, this ordinary kid who's Right. Like an orphan and then realizes, uh, I don't know, uh, his 11th, 11th birthday or something like that, that he's he's actually a wizard. So it's the same it's the same concept. And I would argue, and maybe this comes up, too, that uh, Buffy, the vampire slayer, is is pretty similar as well in terms of like this sort of like realizing that you are this chosen figure. And that, of course, was a little bit later. But yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was um, Sabrina, the teenage witch. Mm that really got me into it. And also that's very similar concept. I think she finds out on her 16th birthday that she's magic. So it's, yeah, like you said, I like the the way you describe it as finding out that you are special or you are chosen or there is something more to you than you are even cognizantly aware of that <laughs> is a childhood fantasy and honestly an adult fantasy too. Like I wouldn't mind finding out that I had 
some kind of magical powers or something special. <laughs> yeah, right. There's still time. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, it could happen. Maybe, maybe it happens at 60. We don't know. Yeah. None of us know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll let you know. I'll let you know if if some certain uh, horrible people in this world disappear next year. It was you. <laughs> don't look at me. It was me. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I'm curious what other, so I was trying to think, I was like, there are not really movies that are this ridiculous and silly and over the top and just plot holy but fun. Do you both remember when that type of movie dropped off? That's a really good question. I, you know, I was kind of thinking about this when preparing for the podcast. I feel like a lot of it has to do with the industry and how, like, the industry is so, it's such a dichotomy now between, like, all the money going toward, like, huge uh, IP productions like Marvel and DC and all these things versus, like, the small amount of money that goes to independent movies. And I feel like the 80s was was a real time where, like, you could kind of just make like a low budget movie like this and just farm it out and people would watch it. And I just feel like that doesn't happen anymore. Although I was like trying to think like, are there like are the teen movies that are coming out on Netflix right now, which feel sort of like assembly line to me? Like, I still love teen movies. I will often watch teen movies on Netflix, especially if I'm, like, sick or something and I'm just, like, in bed and want to watch something really dumb. And I'm like, I'll I'll pick a Netflix teen movie to put on. Sometimes I think they're so bad that I need to shut them off, which is pretty rare for me. me I will often sit through the entirety of a movie just for the sake of doing it. But sometimes these are so bad that I'm like, <sighs> I cannot. I can't even watch this right now. But I'm wondering if that is the equivalent, these these sort of like movies that are just like thrown together really quickly. Um, yeah. But I feel like they're more formulaic, mm. whereas something like Teen Witch feels very like sort of kooky and random and it doesn't really like fit into anything, you know, whereas I feel like a lot of the, the Netflix teen movies are sort of like operate on the same formula. I think maybe there is a lot of validity to that because... It almost seems like Teen Witch, because they were they were coming in after the fact and going, you know what? We need more music. Can you write some more music? And everything was just kind of just thrown against the wall to see if it would stick. And I cannot <laughs> believe now in such a profit-driven, just crazy industry that we have that they would allow anyone to have any type of whimsy with a movie or <laughs> just not come in with, like you said, the step-by-step, -step, you know, the boy meets girl, the boy gets yeah. girl, you know, whatever, uh, th that they just do over and over again. They wouldn't want to take a chance on it because they're not going to get their pound of flesh, their 30 pieces of silver out of it. Yeah, what was... The movie, Joe, that we watched that was a Netflix original, the recent T uh, Do Revenge. Yeah. Did you see that, Candace? We hated that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I. that's one of the ones oh. I, I didn't finish. You don't need to either. <laughs> I have mm -mm. to admit, I like, yeah, I started watching it. I really wanted to like it. But again, it felt, I think also like these movies feel really like sort of sh polished in a way that is not appealing to me. And I think that it's refreshing to go back and watch a movie like Teen Witch or something made in that era where someone like an actor like Louise just really looks like a very normal person. Like she's <laughs> she's not she's not made up ridiculously. Like even when she like makes herself popular and and like is very made up, she still doesn't look like like 
some perfect creature. And I think that's what's kind of irritating with me about a lot of the the Netflix movies is that the these don't look like real teenagers at all. Right. Like, I would rather see someone, like, I think the character who plays Brad is, like, 10 years older than the actor who plays <laughs> Le- 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 Louise, <laughs> yeah, which was so really creepy. common back then, was, like, someone who was mm-hmm. 26 or 27 playing, like, a 17-year-old. But I would rather see, like, a normal 27-year-old play a teenager than a very shiny, polished, actual teenager play a teenager. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> It's weird. It's like the it's like the TikTokification of all teens or something. Mm. It's like they've like everybody is a walking Instagram filter yeah. now. Yes. I yeah. don't know. It feels weird. It's weird. It's uncanny valley. Yeah. Well, and we can't ignore that social media has shaped a lot of stuff that we don't even realize. You know, just everybody being able to have their ten minutes of fame, being able to put out their opinion and it be listen to where normally people that are putting ridiculous things out there would not have had a platform and now they do and now millions of people hear it and they just follow it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's strange times yeah i I wish there was i wish there was a little more diversity in the uh teen movie sphere and not just not just in terms of like race and ethnicity but just in terms of like how are the movies made (laughs) what are the plots like like who can, like, can you make a ridiculous teen movie now? Yeah, let someone have a crazy, embarrassing white person rap battle. Let's see some <laughs> weird shit. And also, you know, I was thinking when I saw this, like, yeah. I really miss things being shot. Like, I miss it when a house is actually shot interior and exterior, the same physical location, not like a set for mm-hmm. the interior. So mm-hmm. Louise's house was a real house that they filmed in. And that's, I feel like you just don't really see that that much anymore where it, they feel like real places because mm. they are real places. Right. Yeah. And like, they probably feel small in that way, like almost a little claustrophobic, but like that is an actual experience, <laughs> you know, of a house. <laughs> yes. Right. Should we give um like a little synopsis of this? Yes. Do not feel pressure if you don't want to do this, but would you like to do this? No, no, I can do it. Um, And feel free to hop in because sometimes I uh, will slip into a digression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So Teen Witch is a movie about a young girl named Louise who is just kind of a prototypical uncool teen. She's not really a nerd. She's just like sort of unlucky in love and, and uncool. And she's about to turn 16, and she has a big crush on, like, the high school heartthrob named Brad, who has no idea who she is. And on her 16th birthday, she attempts to throw a party that no one comes to, and it's very sad. She gets—let's see, is this the night—this is where I might need you to hop in. When she's riding her bike somewhere— and she gets into like the little accident. Is that on her 16th birthday or before? I think that is like the night before. I remember Madame Serena saying, you're about to turn 16. You will know when you turn 16. Right. You're right. Yeah. She's riding her bike home and Brad and his girlfriend, what's his girlfriend's name? I can't remember. 
Rhonda. Randa. Randa. Yeah. That's quite a that's quite a 1989 name. <laughs> so Brad and Randa are driving by in his convertible, and she's like trying to make out with him, and it causes him to veer the car, and he sort of runs and runs Louise off the road, and she her tire her bike tire uh, pops, and so she has to walk the rest of the way home, and she is walking by this house that has like a little um, palm reader neon sign in the window and she attempts to go in there and use the phone and there's this older woman played by the great zelda what's her last name zelda rubenstein rubenstein zelda rubenstein of poltergeist fame is the woman who lives in this house who is a palm reader fortune teller psychic we're not we're not totally sure but louise goes in to use the phone she doesn't have a phone instead as a consolation she offers to read her palm and this is where zelda rubenstein's character madame serena looks at louise's palm and realizes that louise is a witch and she says you're one of us louise kind of walks out of there thinking it's like a load of crap and uh, goes home. But then some strange things start to happen in terms of her sort of like having some kind of spiritual or kind of magical experiences that lead her to believe this is possibly true. And then she returns to Madame Serena's to get more information and finds out a little bit of her history that she actually is is part of this lineage of witches. And here's the first like great... (laughs) strange i don't even know if it's like a plot hole or continuity thing but when madame serena brings out the the yearbook sort of of witches of 1652 and i'm like there definitely was not photography in 1652 but that's okay we'll let that slide oh yeah (laughs) yeah suspension of disbelief right Let's just accept that that maybe witches did have photography in 1652 because they're witches, right? I'm on board. So I can buy it. It looks like it's unclear. It's unclear really what the powers are, how they have powers or why they have powers. They were part of the Salem witch trials where Madame Serena was killed and Louise Miller disappeared and suddenly, you know, has, has reappeared. It seems like they are reincarnated perhaps as themselves over and over again that that's sort of what i took as the meaning so louisa realizes that she has these powers and uh she's working in the costume room in her high school for the school play and she finds an amulet she thinks it's really special and the, and the woman running i don't know this, this is a job in high school that you run the costume studio i don't know maybe in the 80s there was funding for that <laughs> so this teacher who's like her mentor i think her name is mrs malloy maybe she gives her the amulet and the amulet has basically all of louise's powers and and has like found her as madame serena tells her so now that louise has this amulet she can start to like perform spells And so Madame Serena gives her these books of witchcraft and she starts to experiment with these spells at first, just sort of like messing around with the weather. She turns her little brother into a dog sort of by accident. (laughs) And we need to talk more about her little brother, Richie, who is to me the gem of this entire film. (laughs) She just starts to kind of experiment. She makes a bad date disappear. She makes some of the popular girls sort of like, you know, fight with each other. But really what she wants is she wants Brad. So she attempts to do a love spell with Brad and then kind of bails on it because it seems silly and she doesn't really want to make him, 
she doesn't want to force him to love her. So instead, she does like her her big pièce de résistance, which is that she wants to be the most popular girl. And so she does this spell to become the most popular girl in school. And all of a sudden, everyone is kind of fawning over her. She kind of wakes up and has that big makeover scene where all of a sudden this plain, ordinary girl looks very dolled up and beautiful and, I mean, at least for, for 1989, you know, <laughs> which was very over the top um, in terms of fashion. And Brad naturally sort of like is attracted to her because now she she not only looks the part, but she seems to have some sort of like charisma that is making people drawn to her. So it's not just like she puts on the costume of looking like a popular girl. It's like she has she just embodies that. And but it, it's like to the extreme where people are kind of like lining up on her lawn with like signs with her name on it and cheering. And it's it like gets to be a little ridiculous. And so she and Brad do start this little love affair, but she's still feeling funny about it because she feels like it's not authentic. So in the end, in order to see whether or not it's real, she abandons the amulet and Brad still is drawn to her. So I guess in her mind, that is true love. <laughs> and uh, that's the end. <laughs> what did I miss? Some, gra- some grand things, I'm sure. No, you, you did great. Um, I got a little teary-eyed over here thinking about her and Brad, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're that invested. <laughs> that invested. <laughs> Brad is such a complex, deep character. You oh, just, yes. he truly is. You really yeah. understand their connection. <laughs> I just have to say, all right, he is cute. He's like a cross between Tom Cruise and Christopher Reeve. I think they were going for the Tom Cruise look-alike with him, yes. in my opinion. But yeah. so boring. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. Ugh. Nothing to it. I love the scene when they're in like a little rowboat, and he's talking about how. He doesn't know, like, what his future holds or something. And he's been, you know, on the captain of the football team since he was in sixth grade. And I was like, did they have football in sixth grade? I don't know. Maybe. And uh, but then she was like, "You, Brad, you have a lot more qualities than being the captain of the football team. And he's like, I do. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, I'd really like to hear those qualities. <laughs> yeah, what are I, they? I don't know what they are. <laughs> No great abs. That's about it. Yeah, he's good in the sack. Who knows? I don't know. And he and Louise (laughs) do have sex? Question mark or something happens? They kind of suggest at it, right? Question mark. Yeah. You know, I have to. I want to. I want to say I really appreciate the tropes that this movie commits to, which I started making a list of the sort of like. 80s movie tropes or teen movie tropes that oh, this, this movie has, like the makeover scene. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. The evil nerd, <laughs> the dopey heartthrob, <laughs> the annoying younger brother. Yes. The magical psychic shop, the sweet 16 gone wrong. And then to bring us back to what we're talking about, sex in an abandoned house. (laughs) Which I feel like is a thing I've seen in a lot of the 80s movies. But yeah, he takes her to this sort of like abandoned house and he's like, isn't this great? And she's like, I guess. (laughs) He's sort of like creepily like starts to strip down his clothes and and like this is another trope like the slow strip where you just see the clothes sort of scattered yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um honestly. and she follows him upstairs and they kind of have this like makeout scene that they don't show the rest but it's maybe they 
had sex? Unclear. Or they just made out on a dirty bench. I know. That could, <laughs> that, that could be it, too. <laughs> that was such a weird scene. The way that they were like, it, the camera showed her walking along the wall and then him walking along. I'm like, this is like something about a dirty dancing or something. Like the way that they were <laughs> trying to yes. walk towards each other. And oh, my God, that's hilarious. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen any of those, like, clips on YouTube where someone, like, recuts a movie with different music and it seems like a horror movie. I feel like this would be one yes. of those scenes that you could really do that. Like, Oh, yes. Oh, my where, God. Yeah. Somebody has to do it now. <laughs> where she's, like, creepily following him to this abandoned house. It's really, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was reminding me of that scene in Jennifer's body where Jennifer Check lures, I can't remember which boy, but she lures one of the boys to the, to an abandoned house. And it's like under the pretense of them having sex and then she kills him. Yeah. It was like, this is that. Yeah. But no one dies. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I think a little part of me died when I saw it. But <laughs> <laughs> other than that, small, I'm okay. Small casualty. I'm okay. That's funny what you said about the tropes, though, Candace, because when you were saying having sex in an abandoned building, my mind instantly went back to that movie Little Darlings. I don't know if either one of you have ever seen that with Tatum O'Neill, Armand Asante. No. And yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, dear God. Christy McNichol. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything else. You have to watch that. Put it on your list. Little darlings. Okay. I'm the only I've only given right away now. that there's some sex maybe that happened maybe in an abandoned building. I don't know. But yeah, put that down. Well this was it this was actually a nice like pairing with Mystic Pizza, which I just rewatched oh, that's recently to talk about on another podcast, which has not quite an abandoned house, but there is sex in a summer house that is shut down for the winter and they also do the the slow strip where people are like leaving their clothes around and that was that was 1988 so that was just a year before this okay but i actually saw and i wanted to ask if you guys experienced this too i saw a lot of parallels between this and 16 candles oh yes and i mean not just because of the the big sort of like 16th birthday fail but just uh, like the the kind of smart girl ending up with this dopey heartthrob guy the shitty nerds mm -hmm. yes like like why make nerds bad right yeah like this 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 we should talk a little bit about the the nerd in this movie louise is set up with randa's cousin for a dance and she's excited to be invited she thinks that maybe this is like a cute guy but he turns out to be this this nerd who's, like, trying to, like, sexually assault her by the end of their date. And he also was like, I thought this was so funny. He's like, you want to smoke some weed? <laughs> and she's like, no weed, no pills, no beer, no drugs. I was like, what is this? Was this, like, a really, like, anti-drug uh, moment maybe in the end? Yeah. But, like, I thought he was such a strange character because I was like, Who's this like hyper aggressive nerd who's trying to get her to like get high and sleep with him in Brad's car? It was just it was a strange, strange character choice. Yeah. I know. He was so creepy. He has the opposite of weed energy. Absolutely. I thought that like, was that so... Like, that guy would not yeah. smoke weed. I was like, do the writers yeah. of this movie know no. what it's like to smoke weed? Like, this is not... 
Clearly, no. Well, I can tell you, I was trying to place him because he seemed so weird. And then when I was watching it, I'm like, he is, he remind me, reminded me a lot of Pee Wee Herman at the time. The way that Pee Wee Herman would laugh and just be above board. And then a little bit later on in the movie, Rhonda, his cousin, makes a reference about Pee Wee Herman. Hmm. So I'm like, I wonder if they were trying to channel over some Pee Wee Herman energy to him because Pee Wee Herman hit big and then hit the skids, you know, later Mm -hmm. on with some scandals that came up. And I don't remember when the scandals happened, but honestly, that was my first thought was this guy is like Pee Wee Herman on crack. He's crazy. (laughs) I could see that. Yeah, yeah. I also saw a lot I'm of glad people. he disappeared. Yes. I'm glad he she, disappeared. She made him disappear and unclear what happened after that. <laughs> Where if he's still Yeah, no one seemed concerned. Still gone. Yeah. yeah. Well, nobody misses that guy, you know. Yeah, no. <laughs> they were all happy about it. And then Madame Serena did say her spells were weak. So he That's probably true. just like reappeared somewhere. That's true. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of appreciate it. I was thinking about this in like the nerd in 16 candles who ends up getting molly ringwald's underwear (laughs) this this nerd was almost a little like more palatable in some ways because he was so like caricature upfront, but also coming off as seemingly harmless like they, they he played it so straightforward that it didn't even seem real at all and I thought that was kind of interesting, like just just how blatant all of his creepiness and all of his advances were. Like they were just very, very obviously portrayed. There was no nuance to them mm-hmm. at all. And I was like, I think I wonder if that's if that's better or that's worse and how it would have been read at the time, especially by like young girls watching this. Do you remember what you thought about that character, like, when you saw this as a kid? Well, it's interesting, you know, holding him up against Michael Michael C. Hall. Is that the, I think, the actor who played the nerd in Sixteen Candles? Yeah. Yes. Because the nerd in Sixteen Candles, you are sort of coaxed into empathizing with him, right? Yes. Like, he's he does some reprehensible things, but you leave feeling like he's generally a good guy. Like, he's not. You know what I mean? And I think that we have looked back at that movie now and been like, wow, this movie's like, it's just so yeah. like making a lot of bad decisions basically. Yeah. You know? yeah. Like it's, it's a very bad behavior movie to look back on through the lens of 2022, you know, and his character is a big part of that, that he like manipulates Molly Ringwald into giving him her underwear that she has like been wearing and then he like sells it, sells it to other people to smell in the bathroom, <laughs> and then Jeez. he takes home the basically the Randa of that movie, who is blackout drunk, and they seemingly sleep together, and you know what I mean? Like it's it, it it's played as like a she's such a bad person that when when you watch Sixteen Candles or when I watched Sixteen Candles as a kid, I was like, oh yeah, good for him. You know, because <laughs> like she is portrayed as like such a terrible person. Right. That you don't yeah. really care. You don't really care. And you're like, good, they belong together. But so it's an interesting question to say, like, is this better or worse that now they have this nerd in Teen Witch who's just like, there's nothing admirable about him at all. Like you don't 
you don't empathize with him. You don't care about him. He's just like a bad dude. And she makes him disappear. And it's interesting how, like you were saying earlier, that Brad is so boring and flat. And a lot of the characters in this movie are because they almost seem like a function for Louise to make decisions about how she's going to use her magic. Right. Yeah. And so in this case, it's like she makes him disappear. Yeah, it's, that's interesting because it is very much Louise's story and everyone else is just in the story to serve Louise. But that is very nice to see because mm-hmm. how frequently do you really see that where the, you know, the the girl, the teen girl gets to be the central figure and everyone else is just peripheral in her life and only important as they relate to her? Like, I could see why that, that just that alone would make this a cool watch or an interesting watch as a kid. Like, I don't think I would have picked up on it in that way. But I think it is very much just, yeah, like you say, it is very much centered on Louise. And that is, I think, kind of unusual. I mean, I can't think of really other, can you think of other films at the time that do something similar? Wow, in the 80s? For a woman? Nothing pops to mind right now. I'm yeah. I think what was what was coming out around that time. But yeah, especially for a teen movie, it, it did seem like they did portray Louise as, you know, her main goal was to get Brad. And she did. But I do agree that it did highlight her in many ways. And there was tons of scenes that Brad was not involved. And there was other things going on in her life that she was addressing. So I think that that... To me, probably good writing to bring her to the forefront like that. And I don't think it was common then. Yeah, I don't think so either. The only thing that I was like, oh, they really should have addressed this was her friendship with Polly. Did they ever make up or it just kind of fizzled, right? When like Louise became popular and then her, her friend Polly, who you see throughout the film as her best friend, gets jealous and also annoyed with her newfound popularity and this different way she's acting and they have a confrontation about it where Polly tells her what's going on and I think Louise I forget what she says but I don't think it's resolved past that I think you see them both at the dance at the end but they don't I don't think they have a conversation or anything no they don't and that does seem like a great oversight I wonder if there was a scene with a a sort of makeup that ended up being cut. Yeah. Like, I always wonder that when something obvious seems to be left out of a film. It seems like the writers wouldn't have, that wouldn't, that couldn't, that's like such a big oversight for the writers, but like maybe they're just like, ah, we don't actually need this. And they like cut the scene or something. It also, I thought was interesting about Polly is that like, why was she immune to Louise's popularity spell? Right. That is, that is a very good question. Yeah. Because even like, Richie wasn't immune to it. Like, he was, like, bringing her... Her brother, Richie, was, like, bringing her breakfast in bed. Yeah, and that little... Also, very strange yeah. moment for Richie. Oh, my God. What was he wearing? He was wearing, like, a little butler outfit or something. Yeah, like yeah. little Billman. And, yes. Like little Billman outfit. And and speaking with a very strange affectation. <laughs> like, that actor, really. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the carrot... The, this is another trope, you know, like, the the annoying little brother which was i think another 16 candles character wasn't there like an annoying little brother in 16 candles also yeah yes there was yeah but richie really takes it to a new level because he's just like 
it, it just seemed like he went in there and was like, I want to do my own thing. I'm going to be this weird kid and I'm just going to like do weird kid shit, like make this crazy. Be- he's like obsessed with food. And so he's always eating all this like weird foods. But like that to me felt very authentic for like a kid. Kids are weird, you know? Yeah. They do like weird, inexplicable things. They're not cool. They talk to themselves. You know what I mean? Like kids just do weird stuff. And so I, <laughs> I appreciate as a parent, I appreciate the depiction of a kid that's just like, nobody knows what this kid is up to. He's just doing his own thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's crazy. I read the best thing somewhere online. They described him as this character that was part old British woman and part maniacal villain. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was a accurate. <laughs> that is an uh, interesting <laughs> depiction. I know. I'm like, that's it. That's it exactly. Because I know, I don't remember ever seeing this movie, but I knew him. I knew that actor. I don't know if it's because I saw him in something else. I know I did see River's Edge. I'm pretty sure I saw Near Dark. So maybe I have him from that memory. But he's the one character in this film that I'm like, I think I've seen him before doing this, you know, maybe a clip of it or just, I don't know. But he he definitely stands out. Yeah, I think Top That and Richie are the two things that I will remember forever from this movie. Like, those are the standouts. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Y'all, I've been walking around this morning going, Top That. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Top That has really lasted as a cultural reference. I think that's like the top reference associated with this movie is that people of my sort of like even my like kind of micro generation which is often identified as zennials like people born between the years of like 77 and 83 that that seem to have this like the same sort of like very hyper specific pop cultural references top that is like a huge thing that like anyone i talk to who's my age if i say top that they know exactly what i'm talking about it's like I think I even posted a picture when I was watching this movie on like an app and a couple people commented, top that. I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, people like they know that reference that that has like that random little moment has has truly uh, lasted the test of time. Supersonic, idiotic, disconnected, not respected. Who would ever really want to go and top that? Such a waste of pretty face, but hanging in your nose face. I wish that you would take a look and really stop that. Stop that. As seeing it as a kid, Candace, I mean, Seeing it as an adult, my first viewing of the film, I was like, what in the fuck is going on? This is so hilariously awkward. Are they serious? And then I was just like laughing my butt off. But what did you think as an eight or nine year old? Did you think it was cool? What, the the white rappers? <laughs> yeah. I mean, were they cool? Or did you think it was funny? Or does a little kid, like, was it serious to you? Like, this is a cool song. Or was it just like, this is ridiculous? No, I did not think that part was cool. I think that okay. like, it was catchy, but like it wasn't. But I was really trying to think back to this like, the, the sort of white rapper <laughs> intro. Yeah. I was like, where else have I seen this? Like, because the, the, the guy, the sort of lead, is kind of coded as Italian, kind of. So there, it almost had this a little bit like of like a West Side Story feel to it, kind of like the way that they, they were choreographed and, and moving around. And I mean, I do think it was like cool to see Polly be able to like hold her own even though that was magic that was doing that like I think maybe that's why the moment has lasted as like a cultural memory is that you're like yeah Polly go get it (laughs) but 
it is one of those like inexplicable things that was probably very, very of its time. And that time was very brief. And I think like this may be a good time to talk about the fact that this is like one of those movies that's also an accidental musical. Right. That's not written like a musical, but they just sort of like randomly break into musical number <laughs> a couple times in the movie, which is a thing I wish more movies did. Me too. Because it's so fun. Yeah. And so sort of quirky. There's a great scene in the locker room with all the uh, girls after swim practice in their like purple swimsuits singing We Like Boys, <laughs> which is a funny, just random moment. Where they like break into song and dance. Oh my there's gosh. some so there's some choreography at the the school dance at the end of the movie, and then there's of course these like songs that were seemingly I think probably written for the movie that aren't actually like musical numbers, but like I want to be the most popular girl song. You know, where there's like this whole sequence of her walking around and like everyone kind of following her. What am I missing? There's other musical moments, I think, too, besides the the white rappers. Oh, there is. <laughs> I mean, even the even the opener, although there's not words to it, it's like, yeah, like straight out of like a Whitney Houston music video or something. Mm -hmm. there, it's very choreographed. Like Louise's character has on this red two piece skirt dress type thing and she's has a scarf and it's slow motion and you only see the legs and she falls into a guy's arms and it's it's all just very like you would not see that in a normal movie there would not ever be this amount of mm -mm. choreography and dancing and singing no and there's a lot of saxophone this movie really yeah. goes hard on the saxophone oh yeah which is yeah a lot of fuck sax yeah yeah which is very of its time. That opening sequence is a hard four minutes. It goes on. I I timed it. I was like, this is bonkers how long this opening sequence is of like this like dream. I mean, it turns out that she's having a dream that like she's having this very like sexy adult moment with Brad, you know, in some sort of like what you're right. It just looks like the set of a music video. You know, it's very steamy and very sort of like deep purpley red sort of colors and lighting and um but it's it's four minutes long four minutes is a long time when you're watching <laughs> it is, i tell you a lot of the scenes reminded me a lot of early mtv when mtv first hit that's when these music videos exploded because mtv used to solely be music and music videos there wasn't any other shows on there that hit so big in the early 80s, and so many of these musical numbers, I was thinking back, like, that looks like a Michael Jackson video. That looks like a Madonna video. This reminds me of the Thriller video. And, this, mm. you know, it was just so funny how a lot of the lighting and, and things like that that were going on reminded me of music videos I had seen on MTV. I really got that that feel from it just from my viewing of it. I want to ask, like, so something that I was kind of realizing as I was watching this is that, like, I think all teen movies are a kind of fantasy, right? They're, like, maybe not all of them, but many of them are based on this premise of, like, 
wanting to get the the love of of some kind of person that's kind of out of your league. And I think this one is really interesting because it's a fantasy, but in a very literal way. Like she's, it's literally, it's not like watching a movie like 16 Candles, which sort of buys into this idea that you you can win the love of someone, you know, if they realize who you are. This is a very literal, like, no, she's she's enacting a fantasy because she has magical powers and that's the only way she can make this happen. And I feel like I... I have not seen that a lot. Like the thing that I I equated it to are these movies that are like, they're not necessarily like, ma- they're sort of magic or fantasy-based movies, but these kind of like 13 going on 30, like that kind of plot where someone like does a, a swap or they end up, like they wake up an older version of themselves, which is another kind of magical realism movie where you don't really understand the magic. You just sort of go along for the ride. But I can't really think of a lot of other movies where this is so blatantly laid out that this is a fantasy and cannot exist without some power, which I I kind of appreciated because I think that that was more of the reality of like what I felt like as a young girl and Mm. a teenager was that like, no, I never, sure, I had crushes on like popular guys, but I certainly never ended up with them outside of my like fantasies. And that I think that a lot of these movies sort of lead you to believe that those kinds of things, those kinds of romances are a possibility when in real life they mostly aren't for the average person, but that like they can be if you're, you have some sort of like, if you're a witch, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I just didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that, you know? I mean, I think a lot of times in teen movies, when it's a girl who wants to get the attention of a guy and is trying to figure out how to make it happen, it's usually her changing something about herself to make it go down. Either it's her attitude or mm-hmm. there's a makeover scene and it's the way she looks. It's some kind of change that takes place with her that then helps reel the person in. And I guess we, I mean, we do see Louise change herself she becomes different and is like emulating the physical style of this performer what is her name like lana or something in the movie the singer it's not lana shauna yeah she had a real like paula paula abdul vibes yes but Mm -hmm. so it's like she does change Mm -hmm. but you don't i don't Mm -hmm. think the movie really i mean the movie is just very like louise is using her magic to make this happen it's not like because louise used her magic to change her looks that made the thing happen and i think yeah i think that is very unusual i can't think of other movies that really do that it's usually like a change that takes place in a girl that then gets them what they want and helps bring Mm -hmm. about the fantasy that's Mm -hmm. a good point i also like the the sort of idea that like teenage emotion and infatuation and lust is such a force that i could see it being sort of a metaphor in and of itself for creating a kind of like energy creating a kind of magical energy like in a in a sort of carry way right like you know like a poker guy yes exactly and like you look at like a figure like carrie who like her Mm -hmm. emotions created these things to happen in the movie carrie and 
I really love that idea that teenage emotions can create these like external forces. And that's not totally what's happening here, but I, I see echoes of that. Oh, that's a good point. Lindsay, you and I were just talking about this not too long ago about how when we were young, probably junior high or early high school, that if a guy just accidentally brushed up against you or looked at you, it was like your whole body just melted into the floor. Just that intense feeling that I can tell you at my age, I don't even have enough energy for that, <laughs> for that to go on anymore, but <laughs> there's no room for it. But I can read, that is a good point that that type of energy can create this because it Everything is so dramatic at that age and so intense. Yeah. And I think as adults or even like as adults making movies about teens, there's this often this desire to make fun of it because it is silly. But when it's happening to you, it's not silly. It's very real. And you want other people to feel how real it is or to understand how real it is. I feel like this movie does. Mm -hmm. This movie takes it seriously. It's like Louise has this infatuation. It is what it is. It's not made fun of. It's not belittled. It's allowed to exist. And I think that is, again, that is pretty unusual. I think it is too. And you know what else I, I liked about this movie? No one was so terribly mean and caustic. I've seen so many movies where... Even Rhonda, like she had her, she had her attitudes and stuff, but she was never just horribly mean. Brad was never horribly mean. He was just kind of, you know, a clueless, self-absorbed person. But even like when Louise's personal letter was read in front of the class, which was pretty horrible, they didn't take that out to where she was totally shunned and... She, you know, was ripping her hair out because they were plastering it all over the school. And I mean, it was just, it happened and everybody laughed and then it was just over with. Like, I felt like they didn't over-dramatize hatred against her. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's different now. Maybe something like that would happen. Maybe things would escalate, but it just seemed like everything, even the bad parts kind of stayed on an even keel in this movie, which I just personally liked. I honestly think the worst person in the movie is the teacher. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I mean, I remember as a kid just feeling like triggered by that and being so happy that like she eventually sort of like got her revenge on him with her her voodoo doll which was like yeah. it's it's a one of the funnier scenes in the movie i think is to watch this this teacher get what's coming to him i mean he really is terrible terribly abusive to her and like when he's looking through her purse and making comments about her birth control pills oh, yeah you know i mean that's just like Ugh. I think that was a thing where, like, in the 80s, you just sort of accepted that the teacher could do that. Like, that clearly would not fly now, ever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, like, oh, no. but, like, oh, no. it's oh, no. so, and she even says, she's like, please do not look through my bag. And he continues to look through her bag and, like, narrate what he's finding in it, which is horribly abusive, I think. Yeah, I hate watching adults be mean to kids or teenagers. It's the worst. And he is he is the villain of this movie. He totally is. That's why is. it's so yeah. nice when that scene of him walking through the as she's as he's being manipulated with the voodoo doll, he's walking through a car wash. 
I like that scene. It's fun to just see him get fucked with. Yes. Yeah, I think that was for every kid that had a bad teacher because, trust me, being a student in the from the 70s up till I graduated high school in 81, there was some shitty people that taught school back then. Oh, yeah. There was some great people, no doubt. I have some teachers that were wonderful, but I had some teachers that have a big question mark right next to their name. Oh, God, yeah. Nobody was being held accountable for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I want to talk a little bit about the idea of balance and karma, which is something that I was thinking about watching this movie. So thinking about all the spells that we see Louise enact, many of them are like, in her mind, sort of giving someone what they deserve, right? So she like, her mentor, teacher, she like gets her to win the lottery and like meet an Argentinian duke or something and like <laughs> run off with him because she's like this is a a lovely woman who like is unlucky in love and and you know is just working in a public school i'm going to give her these these magical things so she can go off and like live this exciting life and she helps Polly get her confidence to like <sighs> rap with that guy <laughs> like that she clearly like <laughs> has is attracted to and she these popular girls who've been mean she sort of like turns their meanness in on them and they they sort of like are against each other and like these various exam- examples and even like her feeling like she deserves the kind of popularity that other people have and she's talking to Madame Serena about how like Everyone tells me that I'm going to grow up to be this bombshell, but I'm ready to happen, ready for that to happen now. And I remember feeling like that as a as a kid too. That was like, people tell you you're going to grow up and be X Y Z, but that might as well be 500 years in the future to a kid. Mm. You have no concept of time. Like you're just living in the present. You're like, I just want to be this person I am now. But what I found was interesting and and sort of questionable upon rewatching is that there did not there there were very few repercussions to the magic, which I think is something that came up a lot in like future sort of movies and texts about this idea where that like, if you're doing magic, something is being reversed when you like put that energy out into the world so that you can do these spells, but it's either going to really like deplete you or something else is going to be put out of balance, like, in the natural universe. I think that's sort of, like, a, an accepted idea in the, mm. the kind of, like, narrative of how magic works. And I don't feel like that was really represented here. Like, I think that, like, she made some bad decisions about spells and, like, realized that afterwards because of the fact that she, like, lost a friend and, like, accidentally made someone break their leg and ended up getting the lead in the school play and things like that. But... I think overall, like she didn't really, she didn't really suffer for <laughs> for the 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 sort of magic that she was taking advantage of. And I'm interested in this idea of like, can there be magic in the world? Like, are we okay with this idea of magic existing without those kind of repercussions? I mean, I think I like the idea of it existing without repercussions like this for a teen girl, and it being kind of all on them to figure out what is right and what is wrong. It's like taking any kind of morality out of the equation and allowing Louise to just assert her own agency mm-hmm. and learn from her own mistakes without there being some moralizing on behalf of 
the universe or a parental figure or Madame Serena or whatever. Like she's just uh-huh. left to her own devices, allowed to do her thing, and then she either learns from it or she doesn't. I feel like that's pretty empowering. Yeah, because she's not she's not being punished for taking advantage of something that's just kind of a natural gift anyway. Yes. That is true. And, you know, the world isn't fair. So things don't always get put back into place just because good is going to triumph over evil. You could even say she did, since there wasn't a resolution between her and Polly, maybe she lost a very good friend. Maybe Polly's the real role model to look for here. She wasn't influenced. She stayed true to herself. She didn't, she wasn't rewarded for it with anything, but Louise possibly lost her as a friend. But I I like the idea of sometimes people just do things maybe they shouldn't and they don't get in trouble for it. But I think we did have enough of Louise coming to terms with this, like you said, Lindsay, on her own behalf and using her own agency in order to try to find that balance of using her powers versus what does it really mean to be popular, be happy, to earn it instead of just having it given to you. I just want to say one comment about that is that like the people who are popular in this movie, I don't think they've earned it either. I think popularity is a very arbitrary thing that often has to do with like money and genetics. And so like, can anyone earn it? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's so true. I like in this movie too, that Madame Serena is technically like Louise's witch mentor, but she doesn't ever try to influence her or really warn her against doing something. She's very like enabling. Go, you want to do this? All right, like we'll give it a shot. Oh, you want to do that? All right, cool. Even she didn't really provide much guidance other than here's how you do the thing you want to do. So even as like a parental mentor figure, it was pretty like loose in the advice or guidance she gave Louise. And even Louise's parents are really not super involved in her life. I mean, she has like a good relationship with her dad. Her relationship with her mom is a little stranger, but even those characters don't really feel like real characters. They're just very flat one note what did what did both of you think about her relationship with her parents or the parental figures in her life yeah I do think that they were a little flat I was a daddy's girl I can say that when I was 15 years old my mom and I were butting heads like two rams I don't know that's just the way that it was and I found my own self confiding in my dad (laughs) I think during those years more so even than my mom So I could see where that was brought out. But yeah, it did seem like the parents were just on the peripheral. They were almost like the Charlie Brown parents. Like you never, you kind of hear them want, want, want in the back, but you never really see them or know anything about them. Yeah, I feel the same way. I kind of felt like they were just like the typical like sort of like depiction of boomer 80s parents who like don't, they're just checked out. They have like no idea what's going on in their kids' lives. You know, it made me actually think of this movie. Um, I don't know if you've either of you have seen this movie. 
My Best Friend is a Vampire. Oh, yes. Which was like an 80s vampire movie and like like an 80s vampire comedy. I think the parents in that, they just like have no idea what's going on with their son. And then they're relieved in the end because they think he was like, they, they were worried that he was gay. <laughs> When it turns out he was just a vampire. Yeah. I know. It's such an 80s. uh, They're like, oh, thank God. We thought you were gay. (laughs) But you're just the undead. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I think that 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 type of, like, sort of parent was used a lot. Even in a much bigger movie like Ferris Bueller. Like, the parents are, like, they're they're both working. They're busy. They don't know what's going on in their kids' lives. And uh, I think that these were sort of, like, they just reminded me of that kind of characterization of a parent of that era. And honestly, when you were 15, I can remember I didn't want my parents within 10 feet of me. Like I, (laughs) that was just me. I just thought they were the most uncool, unsophisticated people. I just, they didn't know what was going on. I just shut them out of my lives. I mean, so maybe that, she didn't seem that way in the movie, but maybe that alienation that maybe a lot of kids feel at that age when you're trying to become more independent, you're trying to separate yourself from your parents. Maybe that's what they were trying to to portray. I don't know. But I do think Madame Serena was a very interesting character as like an adult figure, a mentor, because she she did give, give off this. I mean, she she sort of alluded to the fact that she has been around for a long time. And she even makes some joke about like she gives Louise the last of her powers, which I don't even really know what that means because they don't explain how any of the magic works. But she gives Louise some powder like to to do her popularity spell. And she says, I was saving that for a mink coat for the Ice Age. Like (laughs) as in like there's going to be another Ice Age forthcoming that she's going to use it for or she's going back in time or something. But she clearly alludes to kind of having been around the earth for many years or many incarnations of herself. And yet she very much seems like a a person who's just like the important things in life are like money and like sex. And I want to get these things and I don't care like how, (laughs) what I need to do to get it. Mm -hmm. I didn't really even understand the exchange. So the last time Louise shows up at Madame Serena's house, the whole house is done over in a very, like, 1989 sort of, like, pastels and blacks <laughs> style, which was, like, that was very evocative of, like, some friends' houses I I went over as a kid. <laughs> like, like, I had to kind of shudder a little bit watching that because I was like, oh, God, I knew people who did this. <laughs> the house I grew up in was more like Madame Serena's original house because I grew up with my mom and my grandma. And it was a very old, like, neo-colonial house and very sort of, like, dark and, like, old dark wallpaper and things like that. So that, the original Madame Serena house reminded me more of my own home growing up. But it sounds like Serena has not taken advantage of Louise, but, like, she the, she gets more power by being around another witch. So she was, like, somehow able to achieve these things and, like, get this beautiful, like, yes house makeover and get that guy who comes from a frog and all that but like she seems to be like the way she talks about love with louise is like it's just isn't love just like a trick anyway i thought that was like a really interesting moment where where louise is feeling bad because she thinks she still believes in the idea of true love and that people are meant for each other and that like if it's really true love it'll happen naturally and it'll last forever and serena's like no isn't love just a trick of like good lighting anyway and it fades and and she seems to have like this this wisdom of someone who's been 
around for a long time. But Louise is like, no, I shall, I shall prevail with my young wisdom. <laughs> right. Yeah, she's been around the block. She's seen, yeah. she's seen a thing or two. And, you know, she did, the, the first thing she said to Louise was, oh, you're not a Mark. You're one of us. Like, she mm-hmm. was definitely going to take whatever money. She had her create money. She had her create yeah. a lover out of the frog, which was yeah. hilarious. So I think Serena was kind of out for herself, but I didn't, I was like, okay, girl, you know, you've lived a billion years probably. Go for it. You you know what's up. I liked the scene where uh, I think it was first Louise. It was that last scene where Louise goes to see Madame Serena. And I think first Louise sits on Madame Serena's lap and then Madame Serena sits on her lap. Do you remember that? It's like, why is this happening? Yeah. It's like they realize that it's not right and Madame Serena should be sitting on Louise's lap for some reason. Yeah. And then you get the one, I guess, cheesy or uh, like advicey line from her where she says, like Madame Serena tells Louise, the real magic is believing in yourself. If you can do that, you can make anything happen. And it's like, wait, what? Where's this coming from? Yeah. Yeah. That that seemed to be like the movie needed to wrap up. Yeah. Like we need a, <laughs> like we that, need a moral. That seemed to go yeah. against. Yeah. That seemed to go against everything that the movie was trying to say which is that like no you should take power where you can find it and if you have it use it especially as a woman because and i got that vibe from madame serena which is like maybe she's been around for so long because she like has access to that power and can make empowering decisions for herself yeah that's like i can't find a man i'm gonna make a man no one wants to pay me for my services i'll just like make money up here and so i don't know i feel like the movie ends sort of where a typical, you know, like 80s teen rom-com is going to end, which is like uh, on the higher ground. But I sort of wish it had had gone in a bolder direction. I think it would have been cool if she had just left the amulet on and said, you know what? (laughs) This is good. Hey, (laughs) I'm one of the chosen few. Uh, This is what I want. I'm leaving it on. And Maybe ended with a, you know, kind of a witchy, evil-looking smile and the camera pans out. I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. But I, I know that at that point they could not have done that. <laughs> yeah. No, that that would have been unacceptable <laughs> in that era. I did like, like, in interviews with uh, Robin Lively, who plays Louise, they asked her, do you think Louise and Brad end up together? And she said very vehemently, like, no, no way. <laughs> that's, that's just... Louise as a teen, she's going to move past that. And that the real life Brad and real life Wanda married like a year after this film and are still married (laughs) is just like the cherry on top of the cake of beautiful people stay with beautiful people. (laughs) Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. Yes, they married in real life. I think had a kid or two and are still married. Wow. That's magical. Like, yeah. that is magical. Like, that is magical. <laughs> like, isn't it? It is. That's such a cool story of how you met your partner or how your parents met on the scene of this yeah. wacky late 80s teen witch movie. And I think they, I'm, I'm not saying they're all best friends, but they do get together when there's certain things. And I think Brad, the actor that played Brad, has gotten with Robin Lively and reenacted. They did the top that. 
Ugh. video together and uh, you yeah, so they get back every now and then over the years and they're all like sure we'll do it you know it's just, so it's just, just a weird kind of cool relationship they all have so maybe louise miller used her magic to bring brad and randa together in the real world outside of the um teen witch universe i think so <laughs> <laughs> yes i like that mythology i think so i do too yeah i was surprised when reading about some of these people that were involved just the interesting careers that people had and how they all ended up working on this movie i should say if you're listening to this there's a really good oral history of the film that is on slash film i recommend checking it out because it's just interesting if you wonder, like, how the hell did this movie get made and what was the film industry like in the 80s and how were people making these lower budget films? That's an interesting read that I recommend checking out because I found it very interesting and it made me want to read more about the film industry in the 80s and how a lot of these, like, weirdo movies like the Garbage Pail Kids movie and stuff, like how, how those got made and all the people that were involved. I think it's always surprising. There are always people that are connected to other things or that you know of from somewhere. Like the deeper you dig, mm -hmm. the more connections you find. I find that stuff fascinating. I could go on like a million different rabbit holes. What are some other movies that are like this from that era that you love? That sort of like quirky, random, how did this get made movie? From the hmm. 80s. I guess it doesn't have to be from the 80s, but like of that with that same sort of like feel to it, like, like this is so random. How did anyone make this? But I love it. <laughs> Jawbreaker was one that came to mind when I was watching it. I, I think Jawbreaker had to take some type of inspiration from this movie and a bunch of other movies. I don't know if it, that falls into that category, but just something that was... And Lindsay turned me on to that one. We just recently, that was my watch for our movie. And I just think that it was kind of a wild movie. And I just wonder, like, who came up with this? You know, having these girls just kill kill their friends and it all be good. <laughs> and everybody goes along with it. So that was kind of one for me. Yeah, definitely, like, never-ending story and the Garbage Pail Kids movie. Or, like, The Dark Crystal. I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, what else. Or even, even like, Labyrinth yeah. is such a... Uh -huh. I was thinking. I was just yeah. thinking Labyrinth. Yeah. Yep. Labyrinth is a, is a true work of art. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I think the movie I was thinking about a lot that I really love, um, that I've I've written about some, is Earth Girls Are Easy. Oh, yes. yeah. Um, you wrote about which that Which is for... also one of those... Was it Brightwall Darkroom? Yeah, yeah, I read that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It was one of those movies that is just so goofy and is also like an accidental musical, you know, where there's just like some musical numbers thrown in, probably because Julie Brown was in it and, you know, she was yeah like a pop star at the time to a degree, I guess. Like, I don't know. Would you define? I mean, wasn't she? She was also a v Was she a VJ, an MTV VJ, I think? She was downtown Julie yeah, Brown. And she yes. also like had a yeah. pop record and other things. But like that movie, it, I mean, it is an all-star cast in that movie. Like Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum, Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. It's just so many um, 
uh, Mike McKeon. Like, it's just, but it was like one of these random movies literally about like aliens landing in someone's pool in the San Fernando Valley. And how do they like, how does this woman like keep anyone from knowing about the aliens before she can get their spaceship fixed and get them back to their planet? And it's it's just so random and so 80s and so over the top, but it is one of the most fun movies I've ever seen in my life. Like, it brings me such joy to be in its universe because it's so ridiculous and it has, like, no point at all. <laughs> but it's, I just, I love it so much. It just brings so yeah. much joy to me. <laughs> I think that's that's probably how I feel about the Jonathan Demme movies, Something Wild. Have you seen that? That's, like, mid-80s. Oh, you know, I feel like I have a long time ago, but not recent enough to be able to, like, reference it or, like, <laughs> know, know what I'm talking about. It's not it's not as wacky, but it's very much like, how did, how did he pitch this? Like, it's just Melanie Griffith is in it, Jeff Daniels. They kind of have a little bit of a meet cute and go on this wild road trip together. Yeah. And then there are all these wacky other ancillary characters who add drama to it and it actually kind of at the end goes into a more dramatic place but just the like spirit of it is so uh -huh. wholesome and evocative and uh, yeah movies like that are so cool where you feel like they have such a rooted sense of place and identity and it is like very much a world you can only enter through this movie uh -huh. i don't know joe do you have any movies like that Oh, my gosh. No, I mean, the ones that you all brought up definitely were good. I was trying to think because I don't think in the 70s they ever made any movies like this <laughs> when I was a kid that you would have seen. Yeah. Yeah, the, just one that I was thinking about, and it was more of a big budget thing. That, but I remember, I think I was probably maybe 18 when I saw it was Time Bandits. Ah, uh, yeah. I love that movie. But I think it was more of a of a... I don't know, maybe a big budget film. It, it wasn't more of a quirky film, I don't believe. But I just remember the fantasy from that one and loving that. That's one I haven't seen. We'll have to add that to the list if it isn't on there. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I feel like The Goonies is kind of part of that also. Yeah. Uh -huh, the Goonies. Like, yeah. yeah. Or Beetlejuice. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It was just, just a very different time for cinema. And I feel like kids cinema or like movies that were geared toward kids but also adults like a movie like labyrinth i mean i watched labyrinth when it came out i you know I watched labyrinth yeah. at a very young age and i watched it all the time i thought it was a kid movie you know but now you watch it now and you're like wow this is really dark like it is a kid movie but like i think especially now that i i have a kid and i'm seeing what this what the the kind of movies that are put out for my child to consume there's definitely like good sort of like Pixar movies that are for kids, but also for adults because they're smart and they're funny and they're like fun to watch. Like a, a movie, I don't know if you guys have seen the Pixar movie Inside Out. Yes. It's like about the, you know, like little emotions that live inside your brain and how they make you make decisions. And like, it's a movie that a kid can watch and enjoy because it's animated and it's funny and charming and it's about a kid. And they don't really totally get everything that's going on, but an adult can watch it and be like, wow, this is really like meaningful. And it's talking about emotions and mental health and all this stuff. And so in that way, it caters to both. But I think what I miss is the kind of sense of darkness that was like part of a lot of 
kid movies that I saw in the 80s that you could say was part of Goonies or part of Labyrinth or Never Ending Story and things like that, where it wasn't, they weren't scary per se. Like in some ways, in some ways they might have been, or to some kids, they might have seemed scarier than to other kids, but that there was like sort of a darkness underlying a lot of that. And I don't see any of that darkness anymore. I feel like darkness is not a part of kids' movies anymore. And I don't know, is that a thing that should be? Or am I just sort of romanticizing that because I feel like it was so influential to me as a kid? (laughs) Or was that just because that's what I grew up with and that's why it means something to me, you know? Mm -hmm. But like, I want, now that my kid is getting older, it's like, I want to show him a lot of these movies that have that darkness so that there is some kind of like, I don't know, I feel like it adds a degree of like depth (laughs) that, that some of the movies lack now. Yeah, no, I definitely think so. Like, I remember... I remember watching even animated movies that were really dark, like the ones that Don Bluth produced, like Thumbelina, or I don't think this is him, but The Princess and the Goblin. Mm-hmm. Like those movies were for kids, but they were dark, serious themes and they scared the shit out of me. They were like, they felt like horror movies to me as a kid. And I don't, yeah, I don't really feel like, not that I'm so attuned to kids' movies being made now, but I I don't really feel like there are any of those equivalents. Like, are there kind of scary movies geared toward young children using, like, animation? I don't think. I don't know. I mean, there are some, like, kids' sort of horror movies that feel very much like the equivalent almost of a show I used to watch as a kid called Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I don't know if... Yeah. If you guys have watched that at all or or if that was just like such a micro moment no, in Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, that were like, it was like kid horror. Like it's scary, but not too scary. It's not going to like, you know. And so I think there are some movies like that, which are sort of marketed as kid horror. Like we go to... um. We go to Goodwill often to just, like, browse the DVDs because you can get them for, like, a dollar. And so even if it's a movie that my kid watches, like, twice and doesn't care about, I've just spent a dollar, you know. And um, we picked up some movie called Monster House, which is, like, an animated scary movie for kids. And, like, but it's not, I don't know. I think there's a difference between, like, sort of kid horror and darkness, you know, like what you were saying, the the movies you referenced. Some of the ones that I think of are, like, the... um the Miyazaki movies, yes. which are like some of those I I watched with my kid and they're sort of charming and funny. But other ones, like he was like spooked. Yeah. <laughs> like he really was like, oh, I don't know. I don't. This is like weird. And I don't know how to wrap my mind around this. <laughs> but like, that's what I want. I feel like that's good and challenging for kids to watch things that, that are weird. And they're like, I don't really know what this means, but I'm sort of into it, you know? <laughs> I think that's a good challenge. I think so, too. And I think it helps them create more of like an aesthetic sensibility, maybe like just exposure to different things, exposure to a wide variety of things and then figuring out what you gravitate toward most. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think I remember feeling that way as a kid watching movies. There was such a variety in what I saw that I really got to figure out what I actually liked even if i was watching shit that i probably should not have been watching which many of us were (laughs) you know oh yeah as we were talking a movie popped in my head that i do remember seeing as a kid that was strange but i loved it was escape to witch mountain oh yeah i do remember that movie 
Oh, I don't think I ever saw that. I have seen that one. Yeah, I think it had Jodie Foster in it, and uh, mm. from like the nineties, right? Uh, uh, no, this was like nineteen seventy-five. Oh, oh, me, I probably saw a remake. Yeah, oh, the, wow. well, there was a whole series. It started out Escape to Witch Mountain, and I think there was like a Return to Witch Mountain. And by the time that they did all the series, I had like outgrown it. <laughs> so mm. I didn't see all the subsequent ones. But <laughs> I do remember seeing Escape to Witch Mountain. It just was, I think it was siblings, and they had psychic abilities, and somehow yeah. aliens got involved. Mm. Like, it was weird, but I just remember it was like right up my alley. So I don't know. I just, I thought about that when you were talking about, Candace how you wanted to challenge your child, but not have too much to overload him. And that movie just popped in my head. I think it helped me to believe that it was okay to, you know, delve into some weird thoughts and it was okay because there it was on film. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like now the questionable things that kids end up watching are just like, weird shit on youtube you know and like we don't yeah we don't have my my kid gets an ipad from school from public school and like it has limitations on it but sometimes he'll you know i'll let him watch youtube for a little while and he ends up on like it just goes from one thing to the next to the next and then you're like what the hell are you watching like because you just like can't mediate it at all it's like (laughs) you know (laughs) it just it just goes and then you're like are you watching something produced in like a sweatshop in russia right now like i have no (laughs) idea what this is like no one is like speaking it's just some weird animation you know and and i feel like there's no there's no boundaries at all and that seems scarier to me than than me watching spooky movies as a kid you know is like my kid watching like things that I'm like I don't even know what this is you know so it's like a different kind of scary I think (laughs) now that kids are faced with but yeah I mean I'm not sure really where teen witch fits into all that but (laughs) I don't know the only thing you have to promise us Candace is when your son gets old enough to see teen witch we have to maybe come back, whether this be five <laughs> years from now, and have him on the podcast and get a whole fresh new kid perspective yes, on this absolutely. movie. Absolutely. We'll do a follow-up and see see what he has to say. His review <laughs> may right. be brutal. Maybe a couple of years, but we will do it. Yes. Yes. Well, is there anything Teen Witch that we didn't talk about that we wanted to? The only thing I can think of is I wanted to know, in an early scene, Richie is eating. He goes to the, I think, breakfast table, and I I think he has two skewers full of burnt Pop-Tarts. Is that what you, do you know what I'm talking about? And is that what you thought it was? I do, and I think that tracks for Richie. Like, I'm not, I don't question that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I didn't either, but I was like, is this, is that what this is? Yeah. Is that when he's making the pizza? No, it's like no, uh, early on and they're at the breakfast okay. table or something. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I love I love that character so much. And I think like, I don't know if they were intending it to be this way, but he does feel so authentic because I do remember like I was a weird kid. And when there were no adults home, I would do weird shit that like, like I used to take my older brothers, uh, my brothers are eight years older than me. They're twins. And so when I was a little kid, they were in high school and I used to like, when no one was home, I would take their shaving cream and I would put it like all over the bathroom mirror just to like 
feel the cool, like, sort of, like, <laughs> cream between my hand and the mirror. It's like kids do weird fucking shit. It's like, let's capture that. So, like, I love yeah. when she comes yeah. home from the dance and Richie's just got this, like, pizza oh. all over the table with, like, marshmallows on it. He's just, like, in the zone. You know? I'm like, I love that because that feels so true to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And the actor that played him, Joshua John Miller... He went on with his partner. I was very surprised that he was the writer on a show that I just binged on Netflix or something called Queen of the South. So he went on to some success. That's great. Good in, for him. Yeah. And other in other fields, which is not surprising because he's very, he's just, you can tell even at that young age, this, this kid was going somewhere. <laughs> And I think his, I think his first, the film he wrote and directed is maybe about being a child actor or something. So I kind of wondered huh. if, uh, yeah, it made me curious, like, what was his experience? Did he like doing it? Does he have good associations yeah. with it? Or, you know, what led him to shift? So that might be, that might be something I dive into if I can find his, the movie he wrote and directed. Yeah, that'd be interesting. The one other thing note that I wrote down watching this, which is like something I think all the time watching teen movies, is that teen sex is not sexy. And I hate when movies like try to make it look way more adult mm. than it is. <laughs> like, my God. Yeah. Anyone who has had sex as a teenager <laughs> knows that it does not look like that. <laughs> you know? Did either one of you ever in high school have? a person that you were going to have sex with, like dance over to you and slowly undress you. And oh my God, come on. <laughs> no, absolutely Pant, not. Pants down, bloop, bloop, gone. That was it. <laughs> or you were like in a car or like some disgusting yeah. place and it was horrible. Yeah. No. Yeah. We need to see more depictions of it being as truly awkward as it yeah. is in reality. And it doesn't need to be bad. Like, it doesn't need to be completely no. going in the other direction because I'm not saying that all teen sex experiences are bad. I'm just saying that they're, like, awkward. Like, and they're, yeah. you know, like, I had a very... It's not like Fabio. Yeah, I had a very good experience, like a positive experience losing my virginity, but it was not sexy. Yeah. It was like... You know, oh, yeah. Like, it was, yeah. It was like, thankfully, with someone who, like, really cared about me and cared about, like, if I was okay and what I was feeling, whatever, but, like... There's nothing sexy about it, you know? No. And so that just seems like a symptom of the the sort of, like, teen fantasy that... I, I thought a lot about this this movie. Um, I think it's a Netflix movie. To All the Boys I've Loved Before. It has this really long yes. title. I don't know if either of you have seen that. It's like a trilogy now, maybe. I've seen the first one. Yeah. And in the first one, there's, like... There is, like, a sex scene in, in, like, a hot tub on a school trip and stuff. And, like, that movie, too, like, watching it, it made me think a lot about teen fantasies. Like, like that this movie is, like, really – like, a lot of the Netflix movies I see about teenagers feel very much like the fantasies I used to kind of concoct in my head about how I would get together with the guy that I like. Even if it wasn't, even if it was just like some normal guy, you know, not not like a Brad, you know, <laughs> um, but just like a normal guy who I liked, I would still concoct these like very complicated fantasies about how, like what would need to happen for us to like be alone in a room together or like some sort of situation where like 
we were alone somewhere and something romantic happened and like nothing ever pans out like that but like I feel like a lot of these movies uh, a lot of these Netflix sort of like rom-coms that I watch about teenagers they feel very much like the fantasies I had as a kid as opposed to a lot of the movies that came out in the 80s teen witch notwithstanding where you know even if you look at something like 16 candles like they do get together in the end but the rest of the movie is just a failure. Like, and they fail to get together the whole time. And then they just sort of randomly are kissing at the end of the movie for reasons that are inexplicable. But I feel like I just like went on a major digression. I can't remember what my original point was, but. I think just like how they feel like fantasies and not. Yeah. 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 Did you watch Dash and Lily, the show on Netflix? No. Yeah. Oh, well, that show is basically like a fantasy I had as a teen and then also into my early 20s, like acted out. And it I think it's a Netflix original. It feels very much like what you're describing. It's like this young woman, maybe she's in high school or something. She's like at a boarding school. Mm-hmm. She comes home for the holidays and she's in the Strand bookstore in New York City and she opens a book and it's like a journal that someone has left there and a message is written in it and she gets sent on this like wild scavenger goose chase to try to find these clues and she's trying to figure out who's behind this and it's this young guy and they end up embarking on a romance and yeah that's just very much something you would dream of happening as a teen like finding yeah. a book that has a message written in it and then that's how you meet the love of your life like we don't really see though i guess that many uh teen <laughs> teen movies or shows that have a more realistic lens they're all kind of romantified or adultified or something yeah. I would argue that a show like Euphoria is probably trying to show what I don't know if either of you have watched Euphoria. Yes. You know, it's like I think really trying to depict what it is like to be a teenager right now. <laughs> Which the the first when I first tried to watch Euphoria, mm-hmm. I watched the first episode and I was like this is terrifying. I'm terrified of teenagers and I can't watch this right now. <laughs> but then I went back yeah. and now I I I really enjoyed like I really enjoyed the whole series thus far. But yeah, I think it is a, a scarier, more realistic view, I think, of, of what it's like to be a teenager. Even though it's it's quite artful. It's not it's absolutely not realistic, but in that sense. But yeah, that show uh, is so interesting. And I, I have been thinking like, oh, maybe we will eventually do a podcast on it because I go back and forth over like I do enjoy I enjoy watching it and I think certain things about it are very good and enjoyable but it's also written by a man directed by a man Mm. and he's an older man and there's a creepy like male gaze aspect to it but it doesn't it doesn't like fully impede my enjoyment i don't know i feel like it's worth thinking about a little bit deeper and trying to suss out like what is going on there because it is interesting, but yeah, something in my brain is just like, this is like an older man writing about these teen experiences that he's, like, how how does he know about them? Is he just imagining them up? Is he, like, I'm a little curious about the process that goes into the creation of that show. I've purposefully, like, not read much about it just because I think if I do, it's going to ruin the show for me a little bit, but I'm okay with that. 
Yeah, I I get that. And I think a sh- a nice antidote to that is a show I watched, which sadly got canceled, called Generation. That was an HBO show. Have either of you seen this? No. I feel like it was it was like similar in, in a lot of ways to Euphoria in terms of its like depiction of like this current generation of teenagers. It was slightly more it had more of like a my so-called life feel hmm. to it than Euphoria, yeah. which feels like very dark and kind of aggressive. I find Euphoria to be like really aggressive to watch. And I think that's some of its power. Yeah. But Generation was actually created by a young woman who's like not much older than the characters on the show. And I think she did it with her. I think she created it like maybe with her dad or because they both have the same last hmm. name. And I, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but it is a another really good like high school show. It's it's more of like it leans a little more toward comedy, certainly than Euphoria does. But but it is like kind of dark and kind of like sad, but it's also kind of uplifting. But I, I really liked it. It was like a, a pandemic watch for me. And I'm pretty sure you can still catch it on HBO, but I, they did get canceled, which was unfortunate. Adding it to the list. And there's some great Gen X actors that play parents on the show, which I, I love Like that, that we're entering this like world where Gen X actors who were like, pivotal in movies I watch as a kid that are now playing parents, you know? I love it. I mean, while we're off on a tangent, that reminds me of the baby, the sadly canceled <laughs> The Babysitter's Club on I think it was on Netflix with uh, Alicia Silverstein as a um mom character. Oh yeah. I've seen her she played a mom in like the new wasn't it like a remake of Valley Girl where she played a mom? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Alicia Silverstone. Did I say Silverstein? <laughs> That's embarrassing. That's I, I gotta put some respect <laughs> on her name. Alicia Silverstone. Oh man. Yeah. She was like the god of, of my generation. That is an egregious offense. Yeah, clueless is so iconic. Well, here's here's a good question that maybe would close our conversation: Is if a teen witch was made today, where do you think they would take it? Like, where do you like? What do you think the movie would do differently besides the obvious things of like the the obvious things that have to do with uh you know white privilege. questionable behaviors but like where do you think the movie would end up i feel like it would be like made by ryan murphy or something and maybe maybe he would keep the crazy musical numbers but everyone would be queer right the musical numbers would be even campier and i think like we said like louise would just end up embracing the power and really Ending on a note of, I'm going to enjoy this and do whatever the fuck I want with it. And yeah, I think it, I think it could be something like that. I'm going to take it dark. I'm going to say that they're going to go dark on it, that there's going to end up being a suicide (laughs) in the movie. (laughs) And that at the end, it's going to all be because someone was bullied and someone used witchcraft. And I, I just believe that it will end up being a tale of woe and i don't know where i'm going with it but that's what i'm ending with (laughs) so so more like the craft more in in that direction yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes like like there has to be penance paid for 
diving into it because honestly, it just seems like that that's what all the movies are now. If a woman does anything, somebody's going to have to die mm. and it's going to be a woman mm-hmm. <laughs> So mm-hmm. for, for that. So I'm taking it there. That's what I'm saying that they would do now. The big Hollywood executives. Would mm-hmm. If I took it over, it'd be different. But. Yeah. If Netflix got a hold of it, it would just be unrecognizably horrible and formulaic and they would take out all the good yeah. parts and it would have some <laughs> stupid overarching message, moralizing, blah, blah, blah. It would be unwatchable. Right. Yeah. Right. Do It'd be do revenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Right. I mean, this is there are some do revenge moments in this movie, but they're funny. They're played for laughs. Yeah. As it should be. Yeah. Well, and I have to say. As far as my opinion on Team Witch, I'm glad that it dropped into my lap, even at this time in my life. I can see myself definitely going back and watching this again when I need an uplifting moment. Because the movie, in a strange way, I felt happy when I got done watching it. So, And I don't apologize for that. So I would say, yes, if this has not crossed your radar for no matter what your age is, do it. It's very playful. Yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah, watch it when you need a mood boost. This is like the perfect, Mm -hmm. just fun thing you could watch while like you're sick in bed or taking a bath or something. Yes. Yes. It's a great sick day movie. And it is currently on Tubi, which is available for free to everyone. So go watch it. and. Thank you to our guest, Candace. People should definitely check out your writing. We will link it in our show notes. And we will also link you to Candace's book, Certain and Impossible Events, which you should also check out. Thank you. Please do. Yeah. And it's, it's about teenagers. It's about that time. So if you like things about teenagers and, and awkward moments and weird fantasies, you'll find a lot of that in there. Ooh. Yeah, so perfect pairing with Teen Witch. All right. Thanks, everyone. We will catch you on the next one. And hopefully we'll have more guests on in the future, too, because this was very fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>